Hi everyone and welcome to Chewing the Fat with Mike tonight. This is part two of the two-part show I did with Peter Wilson on North Korea. Um, Peter is belongs to a society called the NZDPRK Society or New Zealand Democratic People's Republic of Korea Society or New Zealand North Korea Society. And they basically advocate for North Korea in many different respects. Um, I'm just going to carry on from the end of the last um, part of the conversation. But I begin by asking him um, about domestic, or what it's like in North Korea domestically, and what Juche is. This is what he had to say. Well... It goes back, Kim Il-sung was the first leader, right? Yeah. He was the guerrilla fighter. Now, he was in what today we would call Mongolia, but then they called Manchuria. And he started off with uh, two or three hundred fellow guerrillas, and they were fighting the Japanese in, in Manchuria and periodically getting down into North Korea, which was their main objective, and, and sort of sabotaging stuff. Now, during those years, both the Russians and the Chinese had cracks at him, and they killed most of his colleagues. And in the end, as a matter of survival, in the late 30s, he threw his lot in with the Russians, and he became a senior officer in a Russian army um, I don't know what it was, uh, brigade or something that that was made up of of ethnic Koreans because there's a huge number of, yeah. I mean Mongolia, Manchuria, call it what you like. All that top north eastern corner of China actually used to be a sort of part of Korea, and they all speak Korean, right? Um, which is one of the complications for China, because they don't want to see that go back to Korea. But anyway, he didn't trust. The, what I'm getting at is he had very good reason not to trust either Russia or China. Right. So we fast forward World War II. He, with Russian support, goes into Pyongyang. Um, Chinese a bit reluctantly come in and uh, tripped actually by the Russians, but that's another story. They came in and lost hundreds of thousands of men in World War II. So Juche. The war is finished. Both Russia and China want Korea to be their client state. Mm. But he trusts neither of them. So he's got to find a way to distance himself but still be with them. Now, interestingly, Kim Il-sung's parents were Presbyterians. His father was a lay preacher in the Presbyterian church. And he'd been brought up and went to Sunday school. So he was steeped in sort of Christian um, philosophy, but also being North Asian, Confucian ideals and philosophy. And he kind of married these two things together right. and said, we have got to do our own thing. Right. We have to stand in our own shoes and be true to ourselves and be independent and do things the way that we see are best in a socialistic way. Right, right, okay. In this way, he was able very cunningly to distance himself 
No, to protect himself from being... He was able to say to both Mao and Stalin, I'm not dependent on either of you, but I am with you. But it's, but it's, it's an ideological difference, isn't it, between China and the USSR? Is that what you're kind of saying? Well, so it's, it's, a rift did come between China and the USSR, but it, really it was but more Stalin and Mao, and he needed to sort of have them on side, but not have them not be beholden to them. But, but and he created this ideology of, of an independent Korea pulling itself up by its own bootstraps so, and called it Juche. That's really what it was about. And so are you saying that this invention of this ideology is mm. actually only since... Um, yeah, he came up with that a bit in the 60s. Mm. And how does that... Because that comes through... I mean, a lot of the literature I've read about North Korea, this whole ideology comes up. Yeah, and well... it's still part of what binds North Korea Yes, today, it is. Because they feel oppressed and we'll pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, yeah. Would you say that it's kind of an equivalent of, say, um, um, Maoism or the North Korean equivalent of those sort of things? Um, no, I don't think so. No. Really. Like, so. Um, I guess I'm quite fascinated by it. I mean, Kim Il sung and Mao were very different characters but I but, as, um, but where it stands no, Mao just, it was top down Kim Mao, Mao travelled but he was always the big dignitary Kim Il Sung travelled extensively and kept a watch on everything that was happening all over the place and he listened to people he was much closer to the people and so decisions that he took often did really reflect what the bulk of the population was right was thinking which which i don't think you can say for mao no but in terms of an ideology that um binds a people in terms mm. of um their national you know glue mm. in terms of an ideology would you say that jucha is similar to say like um uh Maoist ideology about you know da -da 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 -da, the Mao thing and then also the stuff that was happening in in, in, um, in USSR as well like is that is it kind of almost... I don't think so right okay I can't I don't know enough about the Chinese and Russian but I don't think so well moving on then um, in your visits what are some of the best aspects of Korean life that we don't oh. see well they're just ordinary human beings <laughs> Uh, there's lip service paid to the big man, but uh, well, I, it, it, I sort of learnt that I think on my first trip, because we were there for the best part of a month, I think, travelling all over, with the same people accompanying us, and every meeting that we would go into, there would be all this sort of homage paid to uh, our dear leader, mm. and we'd sit through every meeting for sort of the first ten minutes. It's all this sort of stuff, but gradually that tailed it off, and by the end of the month, they disposed of it completely, and we just meeting started with business. Um, and you very quickly get to realise that uh, we are all human beings. We laugh at the same things, we cry about the same things, uh, we want the same things out of life, and um, they like their um, soju, they like their white, they like a drink and a laugh and singing, and and. Uh, yeah, they're good for great company actually. Conversely, what are some of the worst things about North Korean life? 
Well, we don't really get to see that, of course. In your experience? Um, travel is restricted around the country, which is justified because of the state of war, but it also does obviously allow sort of a, de a degree of control over the population. Um, we hear a lot about the labour camps and so forth. Yes, I want to ask for that. <laughs> but of course nobody actually gets to see them. Um, I'll come back to that one actually. Okay, we yeah. can come back to that yeah. one. Uh, people appear to be quite happy. So the unhappiness is an invention? Um, it definitely wasn't an invention during the 90s because there, there was. Yeah. The belt tightening was pretty tight then. You hear numbers bandied about that two million died, but I don't think that the numbers, I don't think that stacks up. With UN assistance, they ran a um, census in 2008 and the population is 24 million. If 2 million had died in the 90s, there wouldn't have been a population of 24 million in 2008. So probably 300,000, maybe 500,000, something that's like a that lot died. Less. That's a lot less than... Yeah. But, okay, so... So, but it was tough. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, you, you, you hear people saying that, you know, there were dead bodies in the streets and all this sort of stuff. Well, I, I travelled around extensively. In fact, our team, there were 15, and we travelled all bar one province of the, of the country. We never saw a dead body. Right. Now, they couldn't stage manage that because there were 15 of us going all over the show, right. walking around the streets at night. Yeah, I mean, do you have... So th that's all bullshit. You're right, right, right. That's all bullshit. But what about your, but you and the um, organisations you travelled with, and each, mm. of the, each of the six times you've been there, mm. have you had, what's your access been like? What do you mean access? Well, in terms of, are you free to roam the streets? Well, you can walk around the streets of Pyongyang, no trouble. Yeah. But when you travel out and about, of course, you've always got somebody with you. That's just the way it is, really. Um, but... You do get to know traveling. Like if you're, like some of the work that last time I worked there was uh, 07, mm. and I was agitating to actually stay out of a night in the countryside, but for whatever reason, I don't know, they insisted that it wasn't practical. Or I don't know. Yeah. We had to go out every day, and so we'd sometimes be spending 10 hours a day in the car or in a minivan or something with three or four people out there and you'd have three or four hours and then you'd come back five hours, you see. And on those trips, yarning away, you get to know people very well and they're not making any secrets and you do get an insight into their lives and right. uh, how they view life. And interestingly, I've never seen this anywhere else. Energy is very short there, you know, they don't have enough electricity. I've never seen anywhere else coming back at night, maybe 10 o'clock at night, and there'd be a, a blackout in a certain part of the town, or the city, but the streetlights are still going, and sitting underneath the streetlights, even at 10 o'clock at night, are all these school kids doing their homework. <laughs> Quite amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, actually kind of interesting, because it kind of ties in with the next question. Um, 
In the Western world, there's a lot of values around value around wealth and individualism. Right. Is there a North Korean equivalent, like a, a Korean dream type thing? And like, how does? Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know that I can competently answer that, but as in Polynesian traditional society, um, the community is more important than the individual. Um, and actually that goes, that has traditionally, although it's breaking down with sort of Western market economy coming in all through Asia, mm. um, but that um, the community good as against the individual's good is accepted as the most important thing. What you do see um, and it's very noticeable, uh, like the oh, oh, kids are all walking around with um, headphones, headphones and, um, and they've all got cell phones now Is in that the cities. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, and that is valued. Um, so there is... The girls are dressing more brightly. It's a bit like China was, you know, Mao times it was all just those drab Mao suits, now you go to China it's all colours of the rainbow. Right. Not quite as dramatic yet, but those things are happening, but they still value, and of course the messages from government is always reinforcing that right. um, common good. But there is a creep? Somebody said to of... me, somebody, I, I, somebody I, I heard of recently like there's been all these taxis and there's little sort of taxi companies which are sort of semi-private, semi-government supplying the services and somebody was riding in a cab and, and the, the driver could speak English and um, he said to him something like, um, how do you like, what did you do before? And he'd been in a factory or something, you see, and he said, well, how do you like taxi driving? Oh, he said, what I think doesn't matter. He said, I've been told to do this job and I'm doing it. Right. But do we, do we have any, I mean, in, in your experience, the idea of cell phones coming into it and, I don't know, say, Western clothing or whatever, do you, do you, have you seen in your time a creep of, um, or, or, or pursuit of Western culture? Um, they are very enamored with South Korean uh, yeah. soap operas yeah. and soap, uh, South Korean pop music. Um, Stephen Epstein, a professor at Victoria University, is an ex expert on that. And if you want, I'm sure he'd be happy to talk to you. <laughs> I, I don't follow all that pop stuff, but he does yeah. as an academic. Yeah. Um, what else was I, went through my mind when you asked that question? Soap operas, Korea, South Korean yeah. culture creep. Um, is the, is the somebody set up a uh, burger bar yeah, in Pyongyang. Right, okay. well, that, and the burger is expensive, but it's going gangbusters. Really? So I don't know what that, what that well, answers your question. <laughs> yeah, well, in a sense, you know, I mean, I was reading it. And, and something that's become very popular in recent years are microbreweries. Right, right, so right, whether right. you say that's Western or not, I don't know, but they're very popular. Right. Mm. That is interesting. I mean, I was reading um, on Al Jazeera actually about um, 
in the 1980s or 70s, uh, uh, an entrepreneur in Pakistan bringing in a burger joint and it went completely crazy. And I don't know, maybe that's kind of like a sign of things to come. I gotta move on though. Yes. So I gotta ask, this is kind of an interesting question, but what are lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender oh, I have rights no like? idea. That's one so, question I can't answer. I really yeah. have no idea. Uh, it's kind I of suspect weird. that... Or do... Is it illegal to be gay? I, listen, I have no idea. Okay, I'm gonna, I'll have to look into that. Yeah, somewhere. I... So, I could ask a few questions. I guess there's, yeah, really, I, I'm sorry I can't give you any insight into that at that's all. That's all good. That's, Most things I've got some down. idea about, but that's something I have none at all. I'm sorry. That's all good. Okay, so going back to the, um, the labor camps. So, uh, the defectors from North Korea right. are the major source of information from these, right? Well, and they've, they've yes, said, they've said all and sorts no. of things. So they've said all sorts of things um, about it. You know, mass starvation, experiment, human experimentation, human rights violations. What's what's your take on this whole thing? Because obviously, you're well, there's camps. There, there have been, there are, and there always have been camps there, and um, re-education, just as in Vietnam and, and China. That's always been there. Um, as an aside, before getting a little further into it, I would, uh, China last year announced that it was closing down its last uh, labour camp at the end of 2015. Hmm. I would suggest that if Nixon and Kissinger had never gone to China, thus opening China up, that last labour camp would not have been closed in 2015 they would all still be there. Right. And I would suggest that the same thing would happen in North Korea. Now, as a source the of numbers, information... The, the, the common wisdom has always been that there was something like... I'll get onto defectors in a little while. Yeah. Numbers. Everything you ever see was suggesting that there was 250, 300,000 people in the labour camps. Um, last year, and I've just forgotten the name of the guy, the name begins with H, but he's a uh, Hudson or someone, an employee of the Rand Corporation, and Rand Corporation is a military contractor that does studies. Daniel Ellsberg used to work for the Rand Corporation, the man that released the Pentagon Papers and was jailed for it and that. Um, there's a guy in there who the last 30 years has been studying the labour camps. Arguably the world authority. Always highly critical. Irrationally critical oh, of North Korea. Right. But he published a paper 12 or 18 months ago in which he was able to use North Korean sources that he'd, and data that he'd collected over a 30-year period to show that, in actual fact, the numbers in the labour camps have been going down each year since the early 90s and that now there's probably... 80 to 100,000. So from early 90s to last year, the numbers have gone down from, say, quarter of a million to less than to, to 80 or 90,000. 
Um, and suddenly all the commentators and everybody are using that figure. And it would indicate that they have actually been winding them down with a view to doing away with them, as indeed China appears to have. Uh, Laos and Cambodia haven't got to that point yet, but we've got normal relations with them and we never criticise them, but that's beside the point. Right. So they they push these... I mean, it works towards the agenda of anti-North Korean sentiment to push this. Is that kind of what you're saying? Or, like... No, I'm saying they, are, they do appear to be winding them down. That's what I'm saying. Right, okay, okay. Um, Kim Jong-un, we talked about him earlier, but, like, and, and, and talking about him as a figurehead. Yes. Where, does he actually have that much power? I think it's more apparent than, than, than actual. I mean, he is the figurehead. He's the mouthpiece. Yeah. So it's the back rooms of the party... And to depending on what's happening around the globe, the the military who make the decisions, and he is the mouthpiece, really. But he doesn't have too much power, is that what you're saying? Because I mean, we, we oh, all he's certainly that. got respect, but I mean, he doesn't unilaterally make the decisions. He might be a part of the he he, he will be a part of the decision making process, but it's not his unilateral decision. No. Right. Okay. Yeah. So move on a little bit to um, the DPRK in relation to New Zealand, which I think is kind of oh, yes. the interesting, the really interesting stuff. So New Zealand government basically mirrors a stance that Washington projects. Well, it depends which political party is leading the government. Generally speaking, no. Like whether it's Labour or National. Yeah. Um, Why do I would categorise the nine years of the Helen Clark government as cautious engagement. Right. Furthermore, um, if we wrote a letter to Helen Clark or her, or Gough or Winston Peters, their foreign minister, and said something like, the International Red Cross has made a special appeal because there's been extra severe floods and 20,000 hectares of rice have been destroyed in North Korea, could New Zealand uh, contribute to that Red Cross appeal? The Helen Clark government uh, would throw in half a million or a million or something. In fact, they put in about five million, I think, during their term into these sort of things. We have written uh, numerous letters to the current government, but they have not put one cent. Under the uh, Labour government and a policy, as I say, of cautious engagement, and the New Zealand ambassador, who's based in Seoul and is also the ambassador to South Korea, visited more than once a year, sometimes three times a year, and to, to North Korea. And there was good dialogue. Um, since Murray McCulley, became Minister of Foreign Affairs, and I really think it's largely his personal viewpoint rather than a national party. I don't think the National Party's ever thought about it, yeah. but they appointed him Minister of Foreign Affairs, and this is his viewpoint. I mean, I think that in many respects uh, he's been a very good, is very good 
Minister of Foreign Affairs. But on North Korea, he's right up there with Bush and, and um, Cheney and, and co, the neocons. So he entertains no... Uh, some years there hasn't even been an ambassadorial visit. Right. Why? Why? So why? 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 Because he is with he 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 is his policy is the same as what has emerged under Obama, which is called strategic patience. In other words, they just do nothing. Wait it out. And tighten up the sanctions and and believe that North Korea is going to collapse. So, but we've got 70 years of sanctions ever increasing to say it's not working, mate. It's not working. Well, actually, Iran, just away from the New Zealand thing, the sanctions on Iran have kind of been successful in that they have been like, they've come to the table and said, look, we'll do this, 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 this. you know, the, the, the big deal that came through with um, the, the EU... US and Iran mm -hmm. um, has been relatively successful mm -hmm. in sort of curbing their nuclear aspirations. Well, uh, it's hard. Certainly, that parallel appears to be there. Yeah. But if we look at the facts, there have never been sanctions as tight on any other country as there are on South Korea, and they're tightening them up all the time. Mm. But their economy is growing by 1% or 2% every year. Um, what they've done with housing in the time that I've been there, they have virtually replaced the entire housing stock of the country in that 20 years. They have also developed a uh, satellite launching and crude atomic bomb capability despite all the sanctions. So, the sanctions. so they're, they're not working. Right. And in fact, because the North Koreans are so determined to survive and to, to the day when the rest of the world says, okay, we give up, we will sit down and we will negotiate a peace settlement, the tighter the sanctions are, it just tightens their resolve. Right, 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 right. And it also, if you think that the Kim regime is a bad regime, it, it strengthens them because they can say, look what these naughty, uh, you know, the rest of the world's doing to us. We've got to stick together. So what do you reckon New Zealand sh government should take? What do you think the South should We be should be listening to what they say. What happens now is the ambassador's instructed to go. And they're told to tell them to abandon their nuclear uh, nuclear arms program yeah. and to clean up their human rights. That's the end of the conversation. They march out of the room. Right. They don't listen and they don't try to put themselves into the North Koreans' shoes and situation and ask themselves, well, what would we do if we were in this situation? Okay, so they were, so let's say... Hypothetically, in the New Zealand ambassador... But the, under Labour, that sort of thinking was beginning to develop. Right, and mm. if, the, if New Zealand went there, we did those things, do you think the North Koreans clean up their human rights violations and stuff like that? 
Do you reckon they would? If you're not trading and you're not discussing with the country, if you've got no ties with the country, you can have no influence on them. Right. Simple. Um. They want to trade. Yeah. And if you collectively around the world are saying, well, we're happy to trade with you, but you know, things are a bit messy there, you should clean that up, yeah, you're going to take some notice. So it's a, it's a, it's a two-part hmm. bilateral hmm. engagement. Hmm. Okay, so Hello. North Korea is like really different from New Zealand society. What are the main differences that you see between us and them? Well, they don't have to pay any rent or buy a house because all housing is free supplied by the state and basic furniture. <laughs> um, the way they lead their lives and their interests are much the same. They like to watch TV, they like to have a drink, they're crazy over soccer. Um, so there's not that... I mean, as I said before, they're human beings. So. <laughs> The, the way society is organised is different, partly because of the cultural heritage yeah. and partly because of the, the sort of the constraints that living in a war zone puts on them. And is there um, anything that New Zealand could learn from North Korea? I mean, I know that there'd be, like, there'd be a million listeners out there in New Zealand alone who would scoff at that question, but you know, mm. what, what can New Zealand take from North Korea? Politically? I mean, you obviously have political well, leanings towards the left. Well, I didn't in my youth, that's for sure. But uh, I think my experience over the last 20 years has <laughs> has pushed me that way. Yeah. Um, and on a social basis, uh, I mean, if you think of, you know, on a, thinking of people's lives and equality and a sort of fair distribution of the cake, yeah, I think they, they have got something to teach us because there, actually there's a very interesting dialogue. I mentioned the young technocrats coming up, right? Yeah. There's a very interesting dialogue taking place. They meet over a beer and they're yarning away and in their, each in their different departments are able to do something. But they're saying that we've got to change in North Korea. We have to adapt our system and we have to be able to, uh, to trade on equal terms with the rest of the world. Um, and to do that, we have to embrace some uh, aspects of the market or the economy or the capitalist system. Yeah. But we don't want to get, lose the fundamental ideals of our socialistic system. Right. So I said to them, I mean, it's fascinating to go there and to meet one or two of these guys and have a few beers with them. Yeah, totally. Because two or three years ago, I said to them, well, what about China? You know, they've, it's, it's sort of very capitalistic now. Mm. Do you want to can you follow that model? And straight away, without a hesitation, no. Why not? They said the people at the top are so rich. And actually, for all the development 
out in the countryside, the people at the bottom are no better off. So I thought, that's interesting. And the next time I went back and was in the same little group and we were talking away and I said, well, and I knew that there'd been people had gone to Vietnam not that long before. In fact, there's a lot of interchange of missions between the two countries. Yeah, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. And I said, well, what about the, uh, the Vietnamese doi moi model? And they said, no, no, it's worse than China. They said the, the politicians have all got their um, concubines and he said, they said the people at the bottom are still living wrong. tough. Right. So I thought, okay, that's it. And I sat back. And then they said, I didn't solicit it, and they said, and when we look at the West, we do not see a model either because the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Mm. Touche. <laughs> so they are really looking, like I mentioned these people doing the MBAs in uh, Singapore, and they've got other people doing other stuff, studying all around the world. And just recently they had a British expert on microcredit in there <coughs> running some seminars on how microcredit has worked in different countries and it's sort of how it's set up and its pitfalls and da-da-da-da-da. And what they say to me is, in studying these things, we are not saying that we're going to accept them, but we have to understand them and we want to try and adapt them so that we can use this knowledge but develop a Korean society which is more equal. Right. So that's their sort of end goal for these new... Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. So and you say about the top, none of these things, in fact, these discussions even, even in these informal discussions, but the fact that they've got those students out there and that this discussion is taking place in the civil service amongst the technocrats, all of this could not be happening without the agreement from the top. They, they know and they do want to change, but the obstacle is still really that peace settlement agreement. Right, okay. So let's talk about you a little bit. I just, oh. want, to know, I just want to know a couple of things about you. Because okay. I mean, normally you kind of ask this at the start, but I want to ask this at the end. But <laughs> I mean, what's your political position? I mean... You said initially you weren't very leftist, but I mean, the way that you've been talking is, you know... Yeah, well, I've been sort of forced into that, and I don't actually, you know... I have always worked in all the different countries. I have always worked, and I still like to feel that I am apolitical, because when you're working professionally, you have to examine the facts and talk to people and understand the situation and then draw your conclusions. And really what you've heard from me today is that process that's occurred with me with, with North Korea, I would say. Right, so it's kind of like a and rational... I, I, you know, the, what did I see? I, I saw something uh, just within the last couple of days that if you take eight days of the global expenditure on military... Yeah that's enough money to pay for every child in the world to have 12 years of education. Eight days of the global military expenditure is enough money to educate every child in the world for them. Um, so it's Oxfam just 
the last month has been publishing these figures something like, is it 62 individuals have got 50% of the wealth of the world or something? Mm. And our society, whether we like it or not, I mean, the, the New Zealand that I'm living in today is very different from the New Zealand that I lived in as a kid in the 50s. The difference between like my dad was a doctor at a hospital, what he earned against the guy that was pushing the mower, mowing the lawns out there because they didn't have motor mowers in those days, actually wasn't very much. Mm. In fact, he was getting about 20 pounds a week and the labourer in the gardener was getting 14 pounds a week. Now he was a medical specialist. Now you look at today and what the people in the city council and the hierarchy and the leaders of big businesses, their earnings as against the average man who's, who's doing the work mm. is a huge thing. It's, it isn't right. Now you don't, and that is what the, my young technocrat friends are in Pyongyang are saying, we don't want to get into that situation. And no, I agree with them. As human being, I don't know whether you call it left or right or centre or what. Yep. It's just decent humanity. And is this part of the reason why you advocate on behalf of the North Koreans? No, they've had a bum deal. And we... Now, I come at that from a, as, a, as a humanitarian worker who's, who's worked my life on humanitarian issues. Um... But we can take a, a cold, cal calculated, monetary, self-interested view, as we referred to before, if there was an outbreak of war mm. up there. Our living standard here in New Zealand and our, our economy and our living standard would take a dive. Right. So it is actually in our own interests to be analysing that. People in Wellington, ministry universities should be looking at that and analysing it and I believe working for an end to this artificial war to prevent that to prevent war breaking out again because it, it will work against us when it does. What's, the, what's your, I mean this is sort of a random question but what's your primary concern though is it the humanitarian stuff of the North Korean people or is it the um, the effect it might have in a, in a, in a, in a oh, financial I, economic sense? To... Oh, I think the injustice to the North Korean people is the is, is the is the main thing for me. But yeah. all of these other, you know, it you can't works. take one thing in isolation. Yeah. Everything is kind of related. Um, a very interesting thing, and New Zealanders, I mean, apart from all of this, we even though we're a country that consists of what less than one percent of the global population or something we can play a role i would like to see new zealand and all the other 15 or 16 countries that fought in the korean war standing up and saying look it's time to finish it and and convening a conference and and having that peace settlement agreement conference but the, but the politicians are not doing it but Around the globe, there are lots of individuals, academics, peace groups, um, war veterans for peace, anti-nuclear groups, faith groups, etc., 
who would say exactly what I'm saying, that there should be an end to this nonsense in Korea. Yeah. But they're all separated. Bring them together and you're starting to get a bit of people power. Now, there's never been a movement that's managed to do that. There's been a national campaign to end the war, end the Korean War in the United States. And a lot of the religious people and the, some of the Korean war vets and da-da-da have sort of got in, but they've never got any traction. But for the first time, something is beginning to happen and it's beginning to get some traction. And a little facet of it is happening in Bali this week where North Korean woman, South Korean woman, United States woman and one or two other internationals are sitting down and saying, what can we as women do and are there actions that we could take mm. which could work ultimately to a peace in Korea and a reunification of the Cor 10 million Korean families that are separated by this 38th parallel? How did that come about? Why is it coming about? Believe it or not, it's coming about because Gareth Morgan rode his motorbike across the DMZ. Can yeah. you believe that? Yeah, I was going to Gareth Morgan's on my piece of paper in front of me, yeah. Well, Gareth and his wife and, and buddies have ridden all around the world, right, on their motorbikes. I think I saw they'd done 187,000 kilometres, Americas, everywhere. Way back, maybe in the 80s, they did South Korea. They went to the DMZ, and while they were there, Gareth's wife saw some South Koreans standing and looking into North Korea with tears rolling down their face, which really... Anyway, some years ago, they approached our, our chairman and said, what would the chances be of us riding our bikes in North Korea? And he approached Pyongyang, but the answer was no. But over the, in more recent times, we discerned that climate had changed, and we said to Gareth several times, you know, we think that if you approached again, the answer would be yes. So he said, how do I do it? And he said, well, you've got to go there and just talk to them. So in 2012, he and his wife went there and didn't ask for the team. They just said, can we, husband and wife, ride our motorbikes? And they said, well, you've been riding all around the world with your mates, haven't you? And they said, yes, we'll bring them too. <laughs> so they immediately said, yes, you can ride your bikes in and out of Russia and down over the DMZ. Um, so it took them a while to set it up. And they were asking the South Korea government and the ambassador in Wellington was all for it. Um, but three months before they actually did it, finally, reluctantly, uh, President Park did say yes, because it's being done in the name of peace. So, I mean, I could talk, it's a story in itself, but they did. They came out of Russia, never been done before with their motorbikes. They rode all through. North Korea, and they officially started their ride at Mount Paektu, which is a volcano on the border of North Korea and China. And successful. It was successful. And they finished at the, big, at the mountain in Jeju at the bottom. Right. And they took water and they took stones from Mount Paektu in the north and tossed it into the um, crater 
of Mount uh, Hala in the south. Saturation TV coverage in both countries. Really? When they were in South Korea, they'd get out of their motorcycle gear and they'd be walking down the street to go to a cafe. And even in Sivi, without their helmets on and everything, they were recognised and South Koreans were coming up to them and saying, have you got the stone from Mount Paektu? And so they carried one in their pocket. They said, yes, here they are. Every South Korean did one of three things. They either kissed it, put it to their heart, or just burst into tears. So it really touched a chord. And so this is... So the next day, I get an email. And then I talk a few days later on the phone to this um, Korean-American activist. Lady, girl. Don't know what she is, mid-30s, I suppose. How did you guys do that? Why do you want to know? We're going to be running out of time here, Mike. No, that's all right. <laughs> but it's fine. Why do you want to know? This is what she told me. This girl, at the age of three, with her parents, had migrated to the States. And she, as an academic, a columnist, activist, has been trying to get advocating a change in American policy to get peace in Korea. In 2009, there were some terrific floods on the Korean Peninsula. A reservoir in North Korea was filled and was going to overflow and it was going to destroy 10,000 hectares of rice in North Korea. To save the rice, the North Koreans opened the floodgate. The water came down into South Korea and I've forgotten, it might have been six South Koreans were jammed. So Christine, the girl that rang me up, as a Korean, was really touched by it. She goes to bed that night, really disturbed, thinking, how stupid. Why couldn't they just pick up the phone and tell him, hey, folks, we're going to have to lift the floodgates, tell people to move away from the river. Right. Through the night, she wakes up. She's had a dream. In her dream, normally, I, you know, I don't know whether to believe dreams or not, but in this case, I have to believe it. There's a river. There are white candles flowing down the river. She, with other Koreans, wade up What is the source of these white candles, symbol of peace in the river? She gets up there and there's a bunch of women. They're stirring something in a pot. She doesn't know what it is, but they're lighting candles and they're putting it on the river. And she woke up and she said, aha, women are going to solve this problem. (laughs) It's a beautiful story, isn't it? It's true. So she thought, well, what to do? Well, it would be fantastic to get international women of all races to walk, do a peace walk across the DMZ. Look at that, I'm Americanized, DMZ. DMZ, yeah, I that, yeah. DMZ. Yeah. Anyway, she asked a lot of people and consulted around. They said, it's just impossible. But then Gareth Morgan. Right, and done across. the trick. Yeah. So for the next 15 months, I worked with Christine because I was able to tell her how to deal with the North Koreans and how to deal with the um, so-called UN command to get permission to cross, go across the DMZ. DMZ. Ah. Um, 
Dealing with the South Korean government is very, very difficult and they didn't want it to happen and it was only um, 10 days before it actually happened. They nominated 15th of May, which is International Women's Peace Day, Day for Peace and Denuclearization or something, right. um, 2015 as being the day. And although the North Koreans had agreed 13 months before, um, it was only 10 days before the actual date that the South Koreans said. finally agreed because it would have been looked so bad if they'd said no. Um, so that happened. I went up there and I was the only Westerner to stand in the DMZ, go into the DMZ with them, and I was the only Westerner to... Oh, there was a, one media guy stand and watch and wave them goodbye as they went across. Uh, since then, they have got at, it got quite, the announcement that they were going to do it in February last year got tremendous publicity, but then the anti-machine kicked in, terrible things written about Christine and the whole group and nutcases and everything from Washington and all sorts of papers and that. So the actual publicity, which I thought would be tremendous yeah. when they walked across, was very muted. Right. So in that sense, it was disappointment. But the first thing it did was the activists, including women, in South Korea had become inactive. They'd been given such a hard time by the conservative government and they were being locked up and they had stopped, virtually stopped doing anything. When they saw these 30 international women, there was nobody from New Zealand, Joe wanted to, but she was climbing a mountain in Iceland or something. Um, yeah. When the South Koreans saw those international women come over and do something that they couldn't do, yeah. uh, it's reactivated the whole movement to, in South Korea to be sticking their necks out right. and advocating an end to the war. So that was a big thing. The next thing that's happened was they went to um, Washington mm. and they held a conference, a briefing, which was attended by a lot of uh, staffers of congressmen. Mm. And as a result of that, the three congressmen who are still there who fought in the Korean War have got a resolution onto the books of Congress, the final, it's watered down, but the final, from what you know was wanted, yeah, yeah. but the final clause of it states something that the, ho that the international community should um, work towards a peace in Korea. Believe it or not, Korea has never been discussed in Congress before. So that's really something. Mm. They have put their heads together and they have decided that they are embarking on an international campaign. Like They call themselves Women Cross DMZ. Look up their website, Women Cross DMZ, all one word. Yeah. But they're going to, uh, you'll hear about it, over the coming year, a campaign, the catch cry for which is a peace treaty by 2020. 
and this is really an effort and they've already got support from all of the sort of uh, or most of the um, peace groups faith groups anti-nuclear groups etc in the state and they'll be discussing this in Bali this week but this will become an international civil society or you could say people power movement people power got rid of Marcos in the Philippines uh, the Arab Spring hasn't quite worked out as uh, as One might have hoped, yeah. um, but the own governments are too scared, including ours, are too scared to stand up to Washington on the Korean situ on the Korean situation. Politicians react to pressure from people, and the optimistic dream, qu quixotic <laughs> dream, is. But I believe the woman can do it, the woman across DMZ can do it, um, is to mobilise global public opinion. Yes, it's a nonsense that that war is still, still technically there after 70 years. Let's finish it. I hope that we'll find some New Zealand woman that can become a part of that as it winds up. And behind every good woman, there's got to be some men. So we do have a role. <laughs> hey, tell you what, Peter, it's probably about about time to call to call a wrap on this insanely amazing interview. <laughs> That's a good place to to, to leave it, I think. Um, yeah. Did you want to add anything else to that? I mean, no, it's my pleasure. And if you do get some questions coming in, if I possibly can, I'd be very happy to answer to yeah, to, to, to at least prov provide a viewpoint on them, even if I can't answer them. Well, um, that's sort of that's the that's a call out to the listeners at home. You know, if you have any questions or comments about this show, send us a message, and I will fire them off to Peter. Because obviously, it's a really interesting perspective that we just don't have access to in the mainstream media. I'm going to ask you though, like I do with every other guest, um, do you have a a song quest? A song? Yeah. A song. A relevant song. Mm. Well, actually, I was actually going to ask you about your favourite uh, North Korean pop song, but... Uh, you know, I, I you really said, don't... You answered that earlier, but... Yeah, I don't really have inside into it. Uh, I can't think of a song sort of relevant to this... Directly relevant to this discussion. Yeah. But uh, I serve with the New Zealand Red Cross resettling displaced people and refugees in Vietnam during the war, which led to my whole sort of life, really, of living and working in Asia. And I, ha I rather like a song by Johnny Cash, which is called something like Drive On. Drive on. It, it doesn't mean anything. It, do it ain't. Don't mean nothing anyhow, or something like that. Okay, cool. As a civilian in a war zone, before the days that they shot humanitarian workers and Red Cross workers and that type they do today, yeah. we were respected by both sides. So we had, we were able to observe, and it was surreal. Mm. And that Johnny Cash song captures that surreal. Element, element I think. 
So it's not totally irrelevant to the Korean situation, well, but I do like that song. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> who can go wrong with a bit of Johnny, Johnny Cash? But anyway, thank you so much again, Peter. Um, this is a song request. It's Drive On by Johnny Cash. See you next time, Peter.